What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Normal Guy Lazy Eye Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jared Magazine. We got a new week, new interview. This week, we went back to my California roots a little bit. I brought on one of the most successful and highly praised entrepreneurs in the fashion realm. We are talking all things fashion this week, all things pop culture, all things LA. Why the heck are people leaving California? What's going on with all these rich people out there? It's a fun, packed interview. I'm looking forward to get going. So let's go. So when I was growing up in uh, Orange County, California, I was obsessed with fashion. Um, I really um, admired how people looked. I thought the people in LA looked so much better than me. I wore a uniform to school every single day, so I couldn't really um, get into like brands and stuff. But I always thought it'd be so cool to start my own clothing brand. So this next guy started nine clothing brands, and he's extremely successful. Uh, he has helped co-found the the clothing line Young and Reckless. You might have heard of it. If you're a huge fan of Rob Dyrdek's Fantasy Factory like I was on MTV, you definitely have heard of it. So we got D. Murthy on today's show to talk a little bit about his entrepreneurship journey, talk a lot about what's going on in LA, pop culture, why the heck is everybody leaving California, what's going on with all the rich people that live there. So a action-packed interview, to say the least, with uh, one of my new friends now, D. Murthy. So please sit back, enjoy the one and only D. Murthy. All right, well, I wanted to bring on this special guest. I've been looking to get this guy on for quite some time. We got D. Murthy in the building, well, socially distancing, but he is the CEO of the 5-4 Group, and under that group is a portfolio of several brands, including the Menlo Club, Young and Reckless, New Republic, and Grand Running Club, and I know I must have missed a few, but he also co-hosts a number, the number one podcast in the world, uh, Group Chat. <laughs> D, thank exactly. you so much for coming on, man. How are you? Thank you. Lovely introduction. I appreciate that. <laughs> hey, man, you're a busy dude. I mean, I, I guess <laughs> I want to kick it off right off the bat. I mean, you're running nine very successful brands. You've made some incredible pivots during this, this global pandemic that we're in, selling multi-million dollars worth of hand sanitizers and masks even. Do you and you got a you got a newborn on or you got a newborn right now? So yeah, do you get much sleep? What's that like? <laughs> I, I actually do get a lot of sleep, and I think the key to it is I realized so right when I was about to have my first child, a friend of mine said, "I'll give you my one piece of advice for parenting, and that's it." And he goes, "When your kids sleep, you should sleep." Yeah, I took that to heart. So my kid goes to my oldest goes to sleep at seven seven thirty. I'm going to sleep, honestly, like an hour behind him, an hour and a half behind him. You know, it's like, I'm not trying to stay up for no reason um, yeah. unless I have to previously because of work or travel right. or whatever. But I, you know, I need my eight hours. I can't, yeah. I can't. When I was younger, I didn't sleep. I didn't sleep in my 20s and early 30s, but now I need my sleep. Yeah. And I mean, you got, you got a lot going on. You, you have the podcast, you got those nine brands, uh, like I think that's so important to to just take some time to realize like this isn't going to work if I'm not working, right? Like exactly. if I'm not taking care of myself, then th none of this is possible. So it, just, it starts with yourself, right? Absolutely. And it, it's not just sleep. It's what you right. eat. It's what you drink. It's how you kind of treat your body. Because like, you know, an entrepreneur is like an athlete. Like mm -hmm. you, your, your mind has to be sharp 24-7 to, to really make it. 
And so uh, any, anything you put into your body or not take care of it has an impact, has an adverse impact on your performance level. Yeah, definitely. So we have a saying on this show, every story has a beginning. So I want to start at your beginning. Where did you, where did you originally grow up? I grew up in uh, Granada Hills, California, which is a suburb of LA. Um, it's in an area called the San Fernando Valley, the valley, how it's uh, referred to as. Um, and I grew up very traditional. Like my parents are uh, immigrants from India and we had a very like suburban American childhood. Like, mm -hmm. you know, we played sports, went to school, went on a vacation every year. Like we, I had a pretty good childhood, um, you know, in terms of, focused on education, focused on, you know, our community, our local community, things like that. And, and I think not, not really until high school or middle school and high school is when I had like started developing these like massive aspirations of doing something special. Mm. You know, I didn't I, know what that was, but. Was that where you like originally got your entrepreneurial like bug, I guess, or was it not until you got to USC, would you say? No, I had it when I was, a, I was, I had it as a young person. I was yeah. so like, I remember in elementary school reading the wall street journal. Like I was just like, what, what is going on here? Wow. Like, <laughs> you know, I remember just like, they would, they would, you know, they would teach us like basic, you know, finance skills, you know, in, in, in elementary and junior high. And I just got fascinated by finance. And then what really was the tipping point for me was in high school is when the first dot-com boom started happening right. in the late 90s and i saw like businesses like yahoo and aol and all these businesses were became ebay you know amazon i saw them become like billion dollar companies and they were run by very young people at the time in their right. 20s and i was like oh wow you can actually run a business in your 20s that Believe was never <laughs> yeah you were never like today a 12 year old is running a business but when, when I was growing up, like the notion of a young person running a business was very novel. Like you never saw that. So it was quite inspiring to see that happen in front of my eyes. That really nailed it for me where I was like, this is what I want to do. Like, I yeah. want to, I want to do something on my own. I want to think big. Do you think by the time, you know, Miles and Dom are in high school, they should be teaching, you know, entrepreneurship or even like in elementary school or like, is that kind of far-fetched, but do you think it's something that could happen? I, I think they should not necessarily teach, teach entrepreneurship. I think they need to rejig the education system where you teach like basic skills yeah. as an adult that you need to have. So like, how do you, uh, you know, financial literacy is such a huge problem in this country. So mm. it's like, how do you open a checking account? You know, what are fees? credit card, interest rates, th those things, like we never were taught those things and we can't expect everyone to go to college and afford it. So it's like, you need to teach these things in elementary, junior high and high school. And so like, if you teach everyone the basic skills of life, whether it be from communications to math to finance, then the notion of entrepreneurship becomes a lot less scary. Cause right. then you're like, Oh, I know, I know how to create a profit and loss statement. I know how to create a balance sheet. You don't even know how to do those things graduating high school. And I went to one of the best public high schools in the country and I didn't know how to do jack shit. <laughs> yeah, that gives me, that brings me to my next point. You went to the pristine University of Southern California. Uh, you know, obviously kind of 
USC is in the press right now with some, some pretty bad things going on with the Lori Laughlin story. Uh, but what yeah. was your USC experience like? Mine was like, I, I was always very excited to go to USC. I, my, my dream growing up was to go to USC. That's mm. just like, I knew I wanted to stay in LA. I loved California. I loved the idea of just being a hometown person for the rest of my life. So when, when I got in, I was, it was no questions asked. Like I knew I wanted to go there. Uh, my experience there, I would say, was uh, positive in the sense that it showed me another side of the world that I never saw before. I had no idea what wealth was <laughs> till I got to UIC. Like yeah. that was and, an eye-opening experience because, mm-hmm. like, we lived in such like a simple life, and we, you know, my parents did fine, and we we got what we wanted. But I had no idea what being wealthy meant. And USC just being so international and so diverse, I was like, holy shit. I don't even know, like, these people know five languages. I don't, barely know one. Right. So, <laughs> so I think, like, it just opened my eyes to possibilities. Um, I've obviously, lifelong friends I created from my first day of college are still my best friends. Yeah. Um, my network, my relationships in the city, all because of USC. Um, but from an education standpoint, it was actually quite disappointing because I felt like I wasn't challenged enough. I felt like I, I also, as a student, didn't take advantage of the resources. Like when you're in college, you're in such a rush to get out that you actually don't even enjoy the resources that are given to you. Right. It's, it's the fastest four years of your life. And you're like, holy crap, that's, that's all gone. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's, actually what, it's actually a disservice to go to college at 18. I feel like you should go to college at like 24. Mm-hmm. Because like, uh, you know, I just wanted to get out of there. Like, I, I just, there was, I was like, this place is holding me back. Yeah. And so I didn't take advantage. There's so many, there's so much at a school like USC, there's so much to offer the student population that the student population does not take advantage of. Yeah. I bet you, if you ask those kids walking down the, walking down the aisle at graduation, they probably had no idea about some of the things at USC. No idea. Yeah. You don't take advantage of the community. You don't take advantage of the alumni. You don't take advantage of anything. But so that's, I think that's one thing you did was take advantage of the alumni and kind of the network. And, you know, what's the like biggest advice you have for someone that, that is like, I want to build my network. I want to go and, and meet these cool people. Like, what did you do to really to expand? I mean, you have some very successful group of friends, but how did you like find those people and, and kind of mesh with those people? So I think when you're in college, the cool thing you can do is you can email, contact anyone and say, hey, I'm a college student. I want to learn about this. Mm. No one's going to say no to you. Literally right. nobody, right? Once you leave college, that is not afforded to you anymore. So you have to take advantage of the fact that you are a college student. If you're an ambitious college student and you say, hey, I want to be in the fashion business or I want to be in construction and you go reach out to people in that industry they're going to be like, cool. I, I, you know, I want my pipeline of next generation employees and internships or whatever it is. So I was like, as soon as I found out I was going to be in fashion, I took full advantage. And I said, went up to one of my professors and said, who do you know in fashion? And they just instantly introduced me to, to two people that I'm still friends with to this day. Mm. Um, but, but like, it just, it's just like take advantage of the network of your school because there, when you for ego reasons, people want to help the next generation. They right. just do. So mm-hmm. you might as well take advantage of it. So I quickly realized that USC has all these incredible alumni. 
I need, I need to go meet while I'm a student. And then what I also realized is, is the reason why I wanted to go to USC was I knew I was going to live in LA for the rest right. of my life. Like I knew it growing up, like it's just an amazing city. And so I said, I need to go to school to a place where when I graduate, more than likely, these people will be in my community. And I think it is really important through your college process. It's a real, it's a real interesting dynamic. So you go to high school. These are people you've known your entire life. Then right. you go to college and you have all these new friends. And often it's very hard for people to let go of their past. And right. in some cases, you, sh you should do your best to keep in touch for the sake of like relationship. But if they're not aligned with the way you think in life, then there's probably, it's not healthy to maintain that relationship. And so I, I was very harsh on my relationships when I graduated college. And I said, if these people are not like me and want to better their life or better their situation, then I really don't want to be around them. Like I had groups of friends that were like, why do you always want to do this? Why do you want to do that? And I was like, you know what? I don't need to be friends with these people anymore. And I, I literally was so harsh. I cut them out of my life. And I said, wow. and I said, and it wasn't in a, in a mean way. I just stopped reaching out to them. And I said, yeah. I'm going to go find people that are like me. Cause I need that. The amount of energy you give out when you're young and you're starting something is you need it back. You need that energy back. Otherwise you don't, you don't, you don't have the excitement in what you're doing. Yeah. I think it's all about surrounding yourselves with the right people that are going to help you accomplish that mission and, or, you know, get to that next goal, whatever that may be. But that kind of brings me to my next point, right? Your senior year at USC when you're, I'm, I'm sure like the entrepreneurship project for lack of a better term that they have going into your senior year, you have to come up with an idea of a, yep. of a business. How did you get into what it is today? Um, but, but basically like, more specifically, why, why apparel and why fashion? So my freshman year of college, I started my first business. It was an internet community for high school and college students. This was six years before Facebook had even started. Dude, so, you missed the boat. Yeah. And what's <laughs> funny is, is like, it was, we had 50,000 people in this community in like 1999. Um, like, where's my movie? <laughs> yeah. And you know, it ended sadly, but what happened was, is in 2000, this is why timing of entrepreneurship is everything. Year 2000 was the dot-com bust. And the entire technology sector got clobbered. And you just didn't want to be affiliated with the internet or technology. It was actually bad. It was, it was like a bad thing. Right. And so when, when that thing happened, it was so catastrophic for the economy, catastrophic for the industry. I was like, I don't want anything to do with the internet. Fuck that. Like that was <laughs> like this, who cares about the internet? And so it's not gonna I was last. like, it's not going to last. Yeah. And so I was like, let me go focus on something. I know that will be here 20 years from now. And that was, so we ended up coming up with the idea of doing something in fashion. And it was really inspired by my business partner and I's trip to New York city where he was a, a big shopper and really into fashion. And he took me to a store and he's like, we have to go here. And he's shopping, he's buying all this stuff and he has no money. So I'm like, how the hell does he afford anything? Yeah. And so he, then I flip over the price tag of a jacket and I saw it was 35 bucks. And I was like, what is this store? And he's like, it's H and M. It's the first one in America and they do fast fashion. And I was like, what's fast fashion? He's like, well, the idea is, is from like runway, 
to retail in like eight weeks. So like always be on trend, quick disposable clothing. What's crazy is that was only 2001. That's and crazy. That's, you know, less than 20 years ago, H&M came in America and changed fashion in America. Yeah, that's crazy. And so from there, right, you guys really dive into the fashion realm. Uh, and you, you know, you, you've started all these brands, but in 2008, uh, you know, you got hit with the hit with the big recession um, and you're really in the thick of it with your entrepreneurship and the brands that you had created. What were some of the lessons that you really took away from that experience particularly? Um, so I think the first time you experience a recession as a business owner, it's very scary because you actually think it can never get better because you, you look at 2008 and there was a brief week or two where people were saying that you could potentially go to an ATM machine and there'd be no money. And I was like, Oh my God, we're screwed. Who cares about clothes? And we were screwed. Like uh, I would say half our customers went out of business. The other half didn't want to pay us. Um, we owed millions of dollars to vendors and we just couldn't fathom getting out of this hole. And I think if I were to go through 2008 again, I would have flipped the switch and been like, what's the opportunity here? As opposed to what happened in 2008 for us, which was like, holy shit, we're screwed. What do we do now? And we kind of twiddled our thumbs and really just begged people that we need more time. We need more time. Um, but we were not opportunistic looking at the market, being like, okay, world's falling apart. What can we do here? Because Fast forward to this year, right. the moment that happened, I was like, okay, where's the opportunity? I found it. I was like, I can manufacture masks in LA probably as fast as anyone else. Let's go do that. And so instead of treating the pandemic as a challenge, I treated it as an opportunity. In 2008, I just was like, hopefully we survive. I didn't know right. how to approach it. And I think that was such a harsh lesson that we were able to kind of come out of it in a way that prepared us for what happened the last six months. But yeah, it's, it's scary. Like you're, you're never going to be mentally prepared for it. And unless you have someone that has shared with you their experiences or guidance on this type of topic. So there's a, there's a lot that uh, uh, there's a lot to learn from a recession. Do you think it's more about being on the offensive side of things than the, the defensive or maybe more proactive than reactive in that instance? Like in 2008, you know, everyone was kind of reeling and being like, just hold tight. This will be over. And now I feel like today everyone's like, I mean, we don't know when this is going to be over. Like it, yeah. in retrospect, we really don't. So everyone's kind of just grabbing the bull by the horns and going, you know, like you, like you did, like, let's make hand sanitizer, let's make masks and let's sell millions of dollars worth of it. Like, yeah. is that more kind of like what the entrepreneurship spirit needs to be in this, this instance, like be more proactive than reactive? Yeah, proactive is the right word. I also think it's also remove your ego from it. Mm -hmm. So there may be a scenario where whatever you were doing pre-recession doesn't exist and you have to be okay with that. So we always you know, that experience taught, taught us that the business model that we had envisioned when we had started this business in 2002, in 2009 was no longer valid. So if we wanted to stay in fashion, 
we'd have to change the business model. So we went to retail stores because rents were cheap. And yeah. then we got into subscription, which ultimately changed our destiny. But if we had said, we believe in retail, we have to be partnered with department stores and blah, blah, blah. And 12 years ago, by the way, that was still very normal and still a huge business. Correct. And so, <laughs> it, it, you, you know, you just have to like, you have to realize that things change. I think, you know, people have such strong visions and sometimes there's macroeconomic conditions that change your vision and you just have to accept it and move, move forward, not trying to fit a square into a circle. Right. Yeah. Talking about that kind of that pivot from going from retail stores to more online, you, you did that in 2012. You made the shift to kind of just say, screw the retail stores, screw the system. What, what made you make that shift? Was it what, how men were buying their clothes? Was it, you know, people were starting to not believe in retail and the, you know, the internet was becoming more and more of a thing. Ours was very difficult because we actually didn't know. Mm. We, we, we knew that wholesale to major retailers was done. We saw the writing on the wall on that. I actually believed while I was running our retail stores that this business is also dead. But I didn't believe in the internet yet. This is 2011, 2012. I was like, who the hell is shopping on the internet? Like literally no one was buying clothes 2011 on the internet. Right. And it was really a, a situation where this goes back to network. I'm sitting in one of our stores in Century City Mall. My friends and his father show up at my uh, store. It just so happens to be, it's, his name's Grant Shapiro. His father is Robert Shapiro, the famous attorney. Yep. And they were like, hey, we're launching a new business today in the mall. Come check us out. It's with Kim Kardashian. I was like, okay, cool. I'll go check it out. I walk over with them and I'm like, what is this? And he goes, it's a subscription service. I'm like, for what? Those shoes, $39.95 a month. Um, Kim has curated a shoe collection. You get a, a, women get a pair of shoes every month. I was like, that's fucking genius. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, is this new? And he goes, we're launching today. And I call my brother, I call my business partner and I go, I just heard this business. This is the most amazing thing. We got to figure it out for ourselves. Mm. And so my business partner, my brother, they all put their heads together and they come up with this subscription concept. And we were like, huh, this is interesting. This is so unique. This could potentially work. Yeah. And so we launched it in May of 2012. And that really was our, our starting point for, for what the business you see today. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you think we're ever going to go back to a mall? I mean, obviously with the pandemic and everything, like people are kind of going to avoid that, but like, you think about going into a Macy's or even like a Nordstrom's, right? A nice, you know, retail wholesaler. And the experience is like probably one of the worst experiences you'll ever have. You, yeah. can't, you can't even figure out like where to where check to out. Yes. Yeah. Like where, where are the cashiers? Where are they? Yeah. You know, there are a bunch yeah. of tables, but no one's there. Like, are like, obviously you have like, like for, I'm just going to say in LA, right. You have like Rodeo drive and, and, and uh, Melrose, you know, like those yeah. I feel like aren't going to go anywhere, but I'm more talking about like the giant malls that just are just this like cesspool of people. <laughs> Yeah. And I, look, I think the concept of a mall that we all grew up going to will no longer exist. hundred mm. percent. What I do think will exist is that people still crave experiences. People crave being around other people. And 
until the economics of a retail destination changes. So right now, rents are too high in the best locations in the world. Right. When those rents come down, and this pandemic will 100% bring down rents, then the most creative entrepreneurs, say someone like myself even, would be, who's very anti-retail, would be like, huh, if I can rent at half the cost it is today, I would go open up stores. 100%. And yeah. I would make the experience very, very different. Like if I were to open a Menlo house store, it may be seven, eight brands in there. I'll have my run club. I'll have a coffee shop. I'll have a community center. I'll have meditate. Like I'll make it the experience that I think my customer wants. Right. And I think there are signs of that. The problem is the most creative entrepreneurs normally don't have any financing behind them to go open in the best locations, like a mall. Like if mall rents were so cheap that anyone can go open a store, then sure, maybe there'd be more creative ideas. But landlords don't want to put money into the experience, right? Mm -hmm. They want you to just walk into a shitty shopping center. Parking's a pain. The yeah. food is dated. It's just everything is dated. And it's every like, mall is the same. I, I yeah. feel like every mall you walk into, it's like the, the Macy's is on this side. The Nordstrom's is yeah. on that side. And then you have the same exact department stores in between. Yeah, how old are you? I'm 20. I'm going to be 23 next week. Yeah, you're never going back to a mall again. There's no point. <laughs> There's right. literally no point. And like a 16-year-old today is not roaming the malls. They're just not. No. no. And so they're, that, that Gen Z is going to kill all the malls. Yeah, definitely. I, um, I, I do want to ask though, what, what keeps you or like what makes you want to keep adding brands to the five, four portfolio. Like when you have an idea, like what makes you want to be like, yep, let's bring it in or let's, you know, this is a great new project. Let's keep this going. Um, it's a couple of things. One, it's fun. Mm -hmm. It's really fun to launch a new brand. It's really exciting. Like to be honest, it's more fun launching a new brand than running a large one. So there's an excitement level about creating something new that, as an entrepreneur, it's like a drug. You just, right. you need that newness to keep you excited. Two, it's obviously opportunistic. Um, the thing about, I would say, our ability and the way we think about the world on new opportunities, we're extremely patient. So there are ideas in our portfolio that I think are going to take five more years to get any real traction. Wow. And we're okay with that. Mm -hmm. Like we are taking a very long long bet that it'll work out and even with the grand running club it's like such a passion project for me that i'm so slow playing it because i want it to be done a certain way and the way i want it to be executed and like there's i'm going to be like i feel like i'll do it for the rest of my life yeah. so what's the rush right and so i i feel like you know I think people view things differently and people stay focused and, and scale and execute. And I think for me is I actually truly enjoy what I do and I'm so long horizon on it. Like I want to build a conglomerate of brands that we're doing for the next 50, hundred years. I don't want to, I'm not looking to do it to quick flip and sell the business. That's not right. even on my radar or even thought process. So we're thinking very long-term. So when we launch a new idea, we're thinking about it five, 10 years from now, what's the opportunity? Yeah. 
I wanted to ask a little bit more about a particular brand that you helped co-founded, Young and Reckless. Obviously, I, you know, like I just said, I'm 23 years old, so I grew up watching Fantasy Factory, watching drama, and, and kind of, at least from our lens, then the MTV lens, seeing that brand unfold. But what, like, what do you think it was that really made that brand take off? So I, it's a combination of a couple of things. One, uh, I met drama at a time, which was 2009, where we had a lot of experience and knowledge, but we were struggling. And drama had this platform on MTV where he could reach millions of people, right. but didn't have the know-how to execute. And frankly, nobody wanted to partner with him and we wouldn't have been able to get a big talent because we weren't successful enough at that time. Mm -hmm. So we kind of were the perfect fit for each other. And so when the show happened and I was like, wait, they'll let you promote anything (laughs) and you could do whatever you want and they don't want anything. I mean, we offered MTV, Rob Dyrdek, we offered all these people a piece of the company. No one wanted it. Because they didn't think it would be big. Why do you think that is? Sorry to cut you off there. Because we created the model of what TV shows now monetize brands. No one was doing that. (laughs) There was no other brand that did what we did prior to us doing it. Mm -hmm. So it became the model later on where like, oh my God, you can launch a brand off of a TV show and it could do business. And so... You know, I had all the experience. I had all the retail relationships. I just didn't have the marketing power in my own brand. This had the marketing power. So you combine the two and it was just a perfect storm and the brand took off. It really did. And I, I have to ask just because I was a huge fan of the show. Was the Fantasy Factory yeah. as cool as it was in person? <laughs> so really interesting because like I've said this before, I had no idea who these guys were. Right. So when I launched Young and Reckless, I was 29 years old. 28 years old. And I did not watch television. MTV for me was like seven years earlier. Yeah. And so I was like, what are these guys doing skateboarding? And like, I didn't even know what Robin Big was, put it like that. Wow. And so I walk in there and I was like, what the hell is going on here? And it wasn't till the year after the first season where I actually watched the show and I was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. This is like a marketing thing. Fantasy factory was so special because it was the place to be for anyone young who was hot. Like, I mean, Travis Scott, Kendrick Lamar, Travis Barker, you name it, every basketball player, everyone would be there. Yeah. And we don't even realize it until like, if you go back and watch it, you're like, Holy crap, those names are huge. Yeah, like we would be at there and drama would have in the studio, Travis Scott and Kendrick Lamar, Jeez. you know, like the most crazy people were there. It was, it, it was a very special, it was like lightning in a bottle, what Rob created there. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, he, Rob was great in letting all the characters on the show develop their own businesses. I mean, think about it. Fantasy Factory was um, obviously Big Black, Chanel West Coast, Sterling, drama, his brother, like there's, it's created huge businesses and personalities. It was a think tank with a skate park in it. (laughs) Yeah, it's brilliant. And and, and people always, we we meet uh, famous people that always want to recreate it. I was like, I don't know if you can. It was like a cultural moment. It really, yeah. It's not just a big space that's cool. Right. 
No, I agree completely. Um, so you, like you've talked about a little bit, you're a pretty big runner, uh, yeah. big fan of the running, uh, and you started the Grand Running Club. Were you always into running? Like, how did that all start with, with GRC and the Grand Running Club? So I got into running probably when I was 29 or 30 years old. I had signed up for a triathlon, and I was like, let me go see what this is about. And the running is what really got me interested in from an exercise perspective. And I realized for me, running was like a meditation or my escape. I, I'm always around people. Like I've always been around people a lot. So running was like the one time I was alone. Mm-hmm. And so I really, I really took advantage of it. And so I really enjoyed running. And when we launched our brand, we obviously made running product. But I had no idea or wanted to start a run club. And there was a guy named Luke Gledhill that showed up at my office one day and said, would you ever do a run club? I was like, if you'll run it, I promise to show up every weekend. So he, I was like, I'll promote it. I'll talk about it. But like, I just need you to run it. And so he was like, no problem. So we started meeting in West Hollywood. And, you know, like everything in the beginning, it was a struggle to get people out there. Obviously, the first one had a lot of people. And then over like months go by, six months go by, there starts to be like this real bond. And it wasn't about running. It was just about friendship and community. And people forget how powerful community is in your daily life. This is why people join uh, churches or uh, when you're older, you're part of so many different communities because you just want that belongingness. And I quickly realized, I was like, that's what this run club is it's not about running. It's about everything else. It's about the socialization. It's about uh, talking to other people that like you. It just so happens I attract entrepreneurs. So the run club became an entrepreneurial kind of meetup place. And so, so many businesses now that are like very hot e-commerce companies, those guys all used to come and run with us. And so that, that made me realize like, wow, we can really create this powerful community where our run club, I want it to be like the Disneyland for entrepreneurs. So when you're traveling through LA, you want to be at a run club on Saturday because you never know who you might meet or you never know what you might hear or get inspired. And, you know, I, I truly believe that taking care of yourself physically does impact the rest of your life. So instead of me doing like a happy hour club and (laughs) encourage drinking, to me, this is a a better place for people to spend their time and energy. Definitely. And if you, if you're ever out in Boston, man, I, I, when I moved out here, I didn't really like, obviously you have the Boston marathon, but they're just like everywhere you go, there's someone running and it's just such a a welcoming environment. And, uh, but I, I'm the same way. Like I, I swam in college for four years, swam for 10 plus years before that, like running has been kind of like that escape of like, especially now in quarantine with us just working from home and not being able to get outside. Like it's that escape. Uh, but I have to ask, what was the hardest part of the triathlon? The swimming or the biking or the running? Biking. Really? That's yeah. like not the answer that everyone gives. It's, it's almost I, always swimming. I trained so hard for swimming. Yeah. So I just, the biking was impossible for me. It was so hard. <laughs> That's kind of going out on a whim too. Like, uh, I'll see what this is about. Let's sign up for a triathlon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, and you, you have a newborn, Miles. Um, so Obviously, you named him Miles because of the running club, right? Yeah, yeah. My, my, my wife really liked the name. And obviously, running is such a big part of uh, 
what makes me happy. So it, it just is, was a perfect name for us. <laughs> and you're definitely going to use his name for promo codes and, and such, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll have a kid's running brand, sure, in, in, in the near future, I'm sure. I love it. I love it. So I want to switch gears here a little bit and talk a, a little bit about, you know, your favorite city, Los Angeles. Just to start, though, is, is L.A. the best place to build a brand? So if you're, if you're talking about building a consumer brand, there's no better place than L.A. Because the one thing that I believe that brands need to be in today's environment, L.A. gives you the best chance to be, which is culturally relevant. I think people don't understand or appreciate how important culturally relevant brands are to the consumer. Like the consumer has all choice in the world, right? Like you can buy anything you want, whenever you want, from whomever you want. Mm -hmm. So if that's the landscape, LA gives you access to people, resources that are just not, they're not available for other places. Like I'll give you an example. I know a kid's brand out of San Francisco and they're like, we're struggling to find a videographer, a photographer. I can throw... a a penny out my door and hit five videographers. Right. You know what I mean? Like the resources in LA for creatives are just unbelievable. Like there's just so many amazing resources. So I think that why you want to be in LA is I think young creative talent is here. Like there's so much of it. Um, I think people in LA and I think it's because of Hollywood they think big. They think really big in terms of brands. Um, do we have the smartest people here? No. I mean, I, I would agree with that. Like we don't right. have, but we have the, I think we have the most ambitious people. Like people think anything is possible out here. And if you went to San Francisco or if you went even in Boston, academia is such a big part of who you are. Where right. in LA, it's not. Like no one asks you if you went to college, what college you went to, no one cares. But if you're in San Francisco, they'll ask you, where'd you go to college? Did you go to Stanford? Did you go to Berkeley? Like that actually matters in your career. Here, anybody, like the Uber driver can become a millionaire. (laughs) Exactly. You know, it's like, I think it's more democratic in terms of entrepreneurship where you're judged by your idea, your, your execution, and you're more welcome in any group. Whereas I think in places like New York City with the finance industry and San Francisco and technology, if you don't have the pedigree, you're not really welcome. Yeah. And so I had a friend tell me this when he moved out to LA because he came back and said it wasn't for him. He said, because he went out to LA by himself and didn't really have like a a social group out there. He just said, I'm going to go follow my dreams and go to LA. And he said, I think the biggest thing that kind of held me back from staying in LA is that I didn't have a group of friends there in LA. Do you think like that's kind of what you need in LA a good, like you have, like you, like you've talked about your networking and your ability to make friends with successful people. Do you think it's like something that's needed to start your, start your career in LA, like a good core group of people? Yeah. I mean, I think that's anywhere. The difference is if you take a city like New York or even downtown San Francisco, you walk out your place of where you live and there's just people everywhere. So you end up becoming friends with a neighbor. You be friends with the person downstairs or the bartender or whatever. That doesn't happen in this city. This city's spread out. So you have to make an effort. So if you want to make friends, I'll give you an example. That's what my run club has become. I have a great story of a guy who graduated. He went to school out in Boston as well. Mm-hmm. He um, is from Dubai, 
showed up at my run club like his third week in LA. And he's like, honestly, I came because I have no friends and I don't know where to meet people. And I follow you on Instagram. You feel like, seem like a nice guy. That dude who had no friends was an engineer at a, at a big, big company became this like social butterfly over the next couple of years, like mm. throwing parties and just became like, I would see him on Instagram. He's everywhere. He's just like, he has the most amazing social life, but it's, he came to me. He is like, how do I make friends? He asked the question and they said, let's do this. Show up here every Saturday. I'll introduce you to people. And he did. He was 23 years old. He's 26 now. His social life, he's living in London. He's, he's in Cabo for a month or two. Like he's just like this massive, like social experience person now. And I think, cause he put the effort in people say like, I didn't have any friends. I'm like, well, the only reason why I have friends is because I put effort. I went, yeah. if someone invited me to like, oh, my shitty band is performing. I went, I went <laughs> to go to me shitty bands. I went and saw it perform or my friends doing poetry or I'm doing, I went to all those things when I was in my 20s. I supported random people and built relationships. Like a lot of people can't do things by themselves. Like they yeah. struggle with that. Like I'll go, like I used to go everywhere by myself. I didn't care. Definitely. Like, and, and that's how you meet people. When you're by yourself, you're forced to be social. I agree. I agree completely, 100%. Um, so with, you, you've talked about it on the podcast. We have an LA local here and an Orange County native on the other end here. What's in the LA's perspective, what's the biggest difference between LA and Orange County? I mean, I think Orange County doesn't realize that LA exists. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're hundred percent right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think they, they, they really feel they, uh, uh, you know, my wife's from Orange County. I have so many friends that live in Orange County. Yeah. It is I'm, the proximity it is to LA is almost irrelevant because it's like a different country. Yes. And even when I look at where I grew up, which is like Northern part of the Valley, which is, only like 15 miles from where I live right now in Hollywood, mm-hmm. it's a different planet. It's the, the, what's important, the values, the, the way they live their life, their perspective on life. It's just so different. And I think Orange County is just a hyper example of like what's happening around in the country is that whatever your bubble is or ecosystem is, you just get reiterated that over and over again. The difference is there's a part of Orange County that hasn't a lot of wealth so that it it ends up, it's by the beach. It's like a desired location. So it ends up getting a lot of um, uh, attention more so than, you know, some town in, you know, you, you know, Texas or wherever. It's just because of kind of what it is and where it's located to LA, but it's, it, at the end of the day, it's, it's its own city. It's, People have their own interests there. They have their own values, their own perspective. And I think there's, you know, there's a perception that people in LA are completely out to lunch on everything, right? And that's yes, just like, you're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, and it, that's totally not the case. It's just what the media and what people want you to believe. And there are obviously signs of that. But like, for the most part, it's like, regular ass people living regular lives it just yeah. so happens we're in the midst of all the chaos yeah i i love your analogy of like la is a completely different country like or- orange county is perfectly in between la and san diego 
And if yeah. everyone was like, oh my God, you live so close. I'm like, no, it's like you have to plan an entire, first of all, an entire trip. But like, it's, yeah. it's like you really have to tooth and nail to get to those places. And just the, the types of people that live there, just the city versus, I mean, Orange County is a straight bubble. I mean, LA is a bubble, but I think even more Orange County is a bubble. And it was just like, it's three completely different worlds between LA, Orange County, and San Diego. Oh, completely. And, and, and you, like, you just look at it, like the political climate and you look at what Orange County which is actually a quite diverse place. It's actually turned blue in terms of a, a congressman and things like that. And like, it's like, you literally, you, you cannot believe that these people live so close to you that have no concept of what's going on in the world. It's insane. <laughs> like completely insane. Like the most basic decent things, like they just don't see eye to eye on. And, but that's just reflection of how the whole country is right now, right? Like mm -hmm. every city is so different right now. There's some cities that think one way and some cities think another way. Absolutely. And the last question I have about California is, uh, and I know the answer to this, but I want to get your perspective. Why the hell is everyone leaving? So uh, I think it's like anything. It's, there's a few people making noise that people are leaving. So there's no doubt in my mind there are people leaving. I, mm -hmm. I know people that are leaving. Um, a lot of those people, to me, probably came to California in the first place because of opportunity. And maybe they got their opportunity, and now they're fortunate enough they can go anywhere. If you're a native Californian, I don't see you leaving. You're just too accustomed to the lifestyle. You're too accustomed to things that the way things are done. I think there are like things being said in the news or, or by a handful of politicians that scare people. So if you're a conservative person, California is a tough place for you. Right. Because we're no matter what, we'll always be extremely liberal. And um, if you're not progressive politically, I you should leave. Like it's only going to get worse. It's not going <laughs> to, it's not going to, it's not going to be going in the middle anytime soon. And whether that's good or bad, people, people can debate that. Um, I don't really, I'm, I'm happy with that from my perspective. But I think for some people, it's like, you know, they, wanna, they don't want to be told anything. They want complete, utter freedom. And that's not the state for that. We mm -hmm. don't, that's not how we've been operating. Right. So there are other states for you. So, you know, whether it's a Texas or a Colorado or a Florida, you, you have those options. But California is just thought of differently. It's a very liberal state and we're going to continue to be that. And then I think there's a lot of very wealthy, powerful people, companies that are based in California that are never leaving. Like Apple is not leaving. It's the largest company on earth. You know, they're not leaving and right. Facebook's not leaving and, you know, they sure they'll have offices everywhere, but like these are very, very powerful companies and there are a good chunk of the most richest people on earth live between San Francisco and LA. So as, as scary as everyone makes it sound like I'll tell you home prices in LA have not dropped one cent. Mm -hmm. You know, they're up. Everything's up. You can't, right. from what I hear, you can't even keep a house on the market. So I think there are people in probably the outskirts of the major cities that are like, you know what, this isn't the right place for me anymore, mm -hmm. which I understand. That's yeah, I'm, I was gonna say, have you seen Selling Sunset? They're obviously selling the shit out of those houses. So clearly, yeah. something. <laughs> yeah. But I, I yeah, love I mean, that you. I love that you didn't just say it's the taxes. Everyone's leaving because of the taxes, and I feel like that's such the like generic 
typically yeah. conservative answer on why they left was like it was the taxes i was like oh it wasn't yeah no yeah it's like the thing is is like the taxes are what the taxes are they've always been this rate right the the talk of raising taxes was actually by some like bullshit assemblyman that has no power that it's never it's not even on the ballot it's nothing no taxes are going to be raised anytime soon and that obviously got exploited by the media and scared people the reality is i think it's more of just the idea of like take the last six months like conservative people don't want to be told to wear a mask they don't want to be told anything you know mm. if i want to have my gun and shoot people i want to be able to do it and like right. this isn't the state for you then like go to go to florida they're happily let you do whatever you want there but yeah. you know it, we're just not in that situation and if you're if you're scared of the protest then you should leave too because we are a state that protests. That's just what we, it's been since the sixties, you know, we protested right. here. Right. So uh, that's the culture. And like, I live in the heart of Hollywood. I don't remember being scared any night. Mm, definitely. Even during the protest. Yeah. I agree. All right. I want to switch gears here a little bit to the number one podcast in the world. Uh, <laughs> group chat. <laughs> So you, you have a podcast with, with Drama and your brother, and you guys host this show three times a week. And I think Drama says it perfectly every single time, uh, where he comes on and says, it's another day and another crazy freaking news cycle. Do yeah. you come in every day and just kind of like laugh at the topics that you're about to cover and like you can't believe what you're about to talk about at this point? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Like I, I put together the topics for every episode and it'll be like, 8 a.m. I'm like, man, there's nothing to talk about. And then by 11 a.m., I was like, holy crap, everything <laughs> to talk about. It is just unbelievable when you look at world news, the amount of madness that's happening every day. And, and, and I believe that it was always happening. Right. It's just that the way the media now captures every story is now being shared. But like, it's just now we're now the everyday person is aware of everything that's happening in the world. It's crazy. Yes, I know. And I think like, I just, I just listened to your most recent episode. We're recording this on September 9th, but you and your brother were talking about, we have a quintessential tale of two cities that we're living in. And it seems that the rich are getting richer. And then there's the rest of us. I mean, yeah. we, we just saw that Jay-Z and Beyonce, what was it? A, a mega yacht, 75 feet, something crazy like that. 350. Yeah. Oh, I'm like, I'm <laughs> Well, a little off, but just the size of Manhattan, no big deal. Uh, yeah. but what, $2 million a week to rent this thing? Yeah. What's going on here? What's, what's happening? It, th this, is the, this is the biggest. This is what upsets me about people that uh, vote for Donald Trump. If you vote for Donald Trump because you want to protect gun rights, you don't like minorities or immigrants, I'll be like, okay. I understand that you that's in your blood. That's what you actually believe. Right. If you're trying to tell me that he is promoting job growth, um, putting you in a better financial situation, that's full of shit. Cause that's not what's happening. What's happening is that Donald Trump and his cronies are protecting the wealthiest people on earth. That is the, that is what they are doing. So if you came into the Donald Trump presidency, wealthy, you got way richer. And if you came into Donald Trump presidency poor, you got way poorer. Right. And I think it's very hard for people to accept that who vote for him. Because even poor people who voted for him 
say, look at the stock market. I'm like, okay, how much money do you have in the stock market? I go, nothing. Okay. Why the fuck do you care then? Yeah. If you didn't, why, what, why don't you ask, what is he doing for you? And that is what's happening. Politicians actually don't do anything for anyone. And I'm not even saying this is like a Republican or Democrat thing. In general, politicians aren't thinking about the people. They're just thinking about how to get reelected. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I look at what's happening in this country. It is so obvious. It's, it's, and it's, so, it's scary how blatantly obvious it is, even for regular people, that like they're not being taken care of. There's no stimulus check for regular people that it has the GOP just said, we're not sending stimulus checks. No chance. Dude, there's still 9% unemployment for no reason. It's not their fault that they got fired. Right. And now they can't, there's 2.25 million people late on their mortgages. Like that's insane. There's could be, if you assume that's four people in that house, you're talking 10 million people could be homeless. Yeah. At, and no fault of theirs. That's not fair. It's crazy. And so like, and then there's record refinancing hope happening for rich people who want to go buy their second and third and fourth home and like Tahoe and the Poconos and the Hamptons and West Palm beach, you name it. Every, every resort community is on fire. So I, I, I see like this world where like people don't even understand like why, why they're in the situation. Income inequality is the biggest problem facing America for, for young people, especially like how does a young person break out of that cycle? Sure. If you came from a wealthy family, you're out of that cycle. Mm. You know, you went to the top school, you're out of that cycle. Who goes to the top schools? People that went to the top high schools, where are the top high schools in the richest communities in the, in the country? Yeah, like, it's, not it's a never ending cycle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. It's a, a never ending cycle. Like, right. w- of course, everyone's going to point to the one person that some immigrant kid that made it. I'm like, that's one. He was my valedictorian. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, but we do have some pretty young Robin Hooders, as you like to call them, that listen to the podcast. So yeah. I want to ask your advice on this. We obviously have seen the, the stock market boom. Um, but to your point, like, if you don't have anything in it, why the hell does it matter? Right. But Recently, Apple took a little bit of a, of a tip. Tesla dropped 17%. What kind of advice do you have for someone who's like, I think I'm going to get into the stock market and I think I'm going to download Robinhood. What's, like, what's the best way to go about this right now? So when I was like eight, 16 years old, I read a Warren Buffett book. And if you take that approach, which is go find businesses you understand, go find companies you believe in and slowly invest money over a long period of time, you will be wealthy. There's no doubt in my mind. Mm -hmm. If you bought Apple or Tesla at the high, but every time it dips, you buy a little bit more and it's over a 10, 15, 20 year period, you might make a, you might be richer than anyone you know. The problem is what's scary is Robinhood promotes gambling, not investing. It's sports betting. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And if you're going to gamble, I'd rather bet on a football game. It's right. more fun. Mm-hmm. I'd rather four hours of football at least. It's like entertainment. Yeah. This, what people are doing in the stock market is so dangerous and so scary that you, it's a zero sum game like gambling because they're not, they're betting you know, on options. They're betting on high risk companies. They have a very short term horizon. They don't understand capital gains taxes. 
Like, no, dude, they're like, look at my portfolio, dude. I, yeah. I'm good. Yeah. Like, I don't see any TikTok tax accounts. No. Because, you know, if you, if you make 100% in your stock and you sell it the next day, you have to pay 50% capital gains tax. Right. <laughs> right. It's crazy. So, speaking of TikTok, our, we're going we're gonna to air this in a couple of weeks, probably after the quote-unquote deadline. So, I'm interested to see, is it going or are we keeping it? I'm going to guess that it will eventually get banned for a period of time. And then, I and then I think both sides will play ball. But I think you have to ban it to prove a point on both sides. Like China has to be okay with banning it and America has to ban it to prove they're not afraid of a Chinese company. Yeah, do you think China has anything to lose by banning it, to be honest? Yeah, I mean, like, if, look, or sorry, China, by not by not letting the U.S. buy it. My bad. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it looks incredibly weak if TikTok is sold to an American company. Right. Like our most China has never ever ever ex figured out culture ever. They figured it out. They built potentially like the Disney, the Facebook of our of this generation. Yeah. And they're like, give it up. Like, imagine if you know we were forced to sell Disney to a Chinese company or forced to sell faith. Why would we allow that? That looks right. so weak. Yeah. So I don't see why a Chinese uh, uh, government or company would want that. I don't think that's in their best political interest. And this mm. is a political play here, not yeah. really a what's best for consumers. Yeah. We had Taylor, your buddy Taylor offer on a couple of weeks ago. He said the same thing. Yeah. He said, it's, it's gotta, it's going to have to go for at least a little bit. It's not like it, it's got to the u.s has to stay on strong on this because they've talked about it for too long it has to go yeah and and frankly in terms of someone that does trade with china i don't think america has been very tough on china on trade relations at all mm -hmm. like as someone we have not benefited from anything in the in the trump presidency for being a manufacturer in america or china frankly so right. you know wh where is our upside when's that coming yeah. So you recently just turned 40. So happy, happy belated birthday. But uh, you, you. you put out a post of the 40 things that you would tell any, anyone in their 20s and 30s. Some of the, uh, all of them, I will say were great things. I agreed with yes. all of them. Uh, you know, like don't ever sleep, you know, don't go, ever go to sleep angry. Don't take yourself too seriously. That's literally the whole reason why I started this podcast, right? Karma yeah. is very real. But there is one thing that a lot of people were pissed off about. Yeah. And that was, uh, don't waste your time watching TV and movies. <laughs> Like what, what's all the hate about there on that? I think a lot of people feel like they get valuable information from television shows and movies. Mm. So they're like, that's a resource for me. So I would counter that by saying, if you actually went out into the world, you'll actually get even better information because sure. It's great that you got to learn about uh, the housing market from the big short, but like, Go, go work, go follow around a mortgage broker for two days. You'll know that you'll know it inside and out. You know what I right. mean? Like, like there's better, like, I don't know. It, to me, it was such a time suck in my twenties and thirties, like sitting on, I remember I'd sit on the couch for even 15 minutes. I'm like, what am I doing? Mm. Like, this is it. This is prime time of my life. Like I got to get out of here and yeah, I would just leave. Yeah, like the CEO of Netflix was recently on on business on business casual and with with Kinsey Grant, and he was like, 
I can't even sit and watch all the shows and all the, all the content that we're putting out. Cause it just doesn't, first of all, it doesn't promote health and it doesn't, it's not who I am, but like, like, yes, yeah. obviously I have to do it for work, but like, you can't sit there for five, 10 hours watching selling sunset or whatever the next big thing is, you know? Yeah. And even now, even now with, um, where, you know, I am, I'm home all day, every day. Right. I may watch 30, 45 minutes a TV a day. Like that's not maybe. wasting your time. Right. But that's like, yeah, yeah that's yeah, an hour of your day. Exactly. I love yeah, it. Yeah. It's just like, <laughs> it's just a pastime, but it's funny that people, you know, and I get it. Like if you don't know better then that's your source of information. Definitely. All right. So you recently came out with this whole promo uh, leading up to your birthday and absolutely loved all the posts. You had billboards, yeah. celebrities, I mean, Instagram comments, yeah. all around the basis of who the F is D. So I want to turn it on you. And if so, for someone who's listening to this podcast and maybe haven't, hasn't heard of you yet, or you know, someone that you're just meeting on the streets, how would you answer to who the F is D? That is a great question. Um, I would say I am a entrepreneur i am a friend to all i am a mentor to whoever wants to be i am fun to be around and i live life to the fullest i love it that's a great elevator pitch (laughs) (laughs) i love it awesome well d i have one last question for you that we ask all of our guests kind of perfect play into the last question but if you were to write an autobiography talking about everything that you've gone through in your whole career what would be the title of your autobiography and why so i i have an idea for a book and maybe this could be my autobiography um 10 reasons why you're still a loser. <laughs> why is that? Why, why that title? I think men have severe self-confidence issues. Yep. And I think that self-confidence prohibits them from doing many things in their life. Um, and once you can get over that hump, your life becomes so much better. And so what I really want, if I were to write an autobiography about my story, all I would want people to understand is that like, I am for all intents and purposes, an ordinary person that's living an extraordinary life. And that's because I wanted it. Mm-hmm. Not because I'm extremely talented at one thing over another. Like I'm not a you know, physical gift where I LeBron James or something, yeah. you know? Like I did, I'm like everybody else. I just did things and thought about things a little differently. And I think that came from a lot of self-confidence, right? And I think that applied to so many aspects of my life. It's even like starting the podcast, starting the run club or putting out a song. Like I believe I have the right to do whatever I want and I go do it. Mm. I don't just talk about it. Like I'll go do it and then I'll talk about it incessantly, but I'll go do it first. And I'll be like, I don't want people to ever limit me on what I can, can't do, can't say. I just don't like that. Like, I don't want to live in that mindset. And I think that's what I would write a book about. Yeah. And I love that when you Google D. Murthy, the first thing that pops up is that you're an artist. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's perfect. It's perfect. All right, D. Well, thank you so much. This was an absolute blast. I appreciate you coming on and telling us a little bit more. And uh, we hopefully we can keep in touch. Yeah. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. All right.
Huge thanks to the highly skilled, highly talented D. Murthy for coming on today's podcast, sharing his story around his entrepreneurship journey. Thanks for sharing his hot takes on Los Angeles. Just an action-packed interview on all things California. Made me miss it a little bit, but uh, big thanks to him. Be sure to go check him out on Instagram, at D. Murthy. Uh, check out the 5-4 group. Links to all things 5-4 and D are in the description of this podcast. And a huge shout out uh, just because they gave me a little bit of a shout out on their episode on the 18th to the group chat podcast. Uh, your boy Pete, thank you so much for the awesome shout out. And uh, be sure to go check it out with Chris Dramafaf, Anod Murthy, and D Murthy talking all things news, giving the hottest takes on the things happening in the news. It's a great podcast that you guys should all go check out. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. That does it. Another episode in the books, eight down. And 100,000 more to go. I don't know. We're just going to keep this train rolling as long as we can. Uh, be sure to follow us at Normal Guy Lazy Eye on Instagram. Be sure to like, subscribe, leave five stars, leave a review, whatever you do for your favorite podcast. Be sure to do it for this one. Tell your coworkers, tell your friends, tell your parents. There's this hot new podcast uh, with a normal guy who has a lazy eye that you never see because it's a podcast. So it's perfect. But, anyways, guys, I will see you all next Wednesday. <laughs>